0: Hello and welcome to Can't Find My Way Home, the podcast where expats from around the globe talk about the music and art scene in their adopted home. I'm your host, Craig. In this episode of Can't Find My Way Home, we take a look at one of the live music landmarks in Seoul, South Korea, Woodstock in Et1. This year marks the four year anniversary since I left South Korea after 17 years. Quite a stretch, you could say. The last gig I played, just a couple of days before heading back to Scotland, was at Woodstock with my band, Sticky Fingers. True to form, Tom, Mike, Jeff, Josh and I started at 11pm and played on into the wee hours. A bunch of friends swung by and watched the show, then we drank some more, long into the night. It was a great, memorable way to leave the country I'd called home for so long. Loud music, friends, beer, great banter, late nights, then the long walk home with my cymbal bag, snare drum and backpack full of sweaty t-shirts, towels and a myriad of other things that only drummers would appreciate. i played at Woodstock countless times over the years and forever cursed the increasing layer upon layer of duct tape on those once fantastic sounding drums. But... That was part of the deal. Bandmates and I would often stay late after shows, Air Drum to Guns N' Roses or Van Halen, Black Sabbath, or just whatever random stuff was on the, the sound system. Drinking brandy shots with Mr. Wu. Oh, you'd get into conversation with all sorts of people from all over the world, talking about music, drums, or why Alex Van Halen's such an underrated drummer. There was always something going down. Anyway, I digress. Sadly, Mr. Wu passed away in April 2019, and more recently the building has also been torn down. One and the music scene in Seoul is a lesser place for it. This episode is a collection of clips, interviews and written contributions from numerous friends and fellow musicians who had also played at Woodstock over the years. You will hear in order, Brian Aylward, David Tizard, Kevin Lowe, Tim Colling, Tom Daly, Lance Regandale, J.J. Alexander, Mark Will, and David Tezzer to close the episode.
1: I got on stage for the first time in South Korea. It was like November 11th, 2005 at Roxon's Bar in Anyang. But it was the Soul Artist Network at Woodstock E.T. Bar that kept me going for sure. Every Sunday, poets, musicians, dancers, visual artists, all kinds of creatives would get together and share their stuff. Then there was me, the only comedian, just screaming my shitty ideas into the night. Everybody was very nice and supportive. And honestly, without that support, I really don't know if I would have kept going with my jokes and stories. Right There was like Jeremy Toombs, Rebecca Kant, Yvonne Malenfant, Zane Ivey, Keith Anthony, and so many more people who were always very nice and welcoming to me. And in the beginning, I was always nervous. But I felt like I found my tribe. Woodstock was beautifully dingy, right? The sticky floors, the graffiti, and a legit rock and roll vibe. And the talent level was truly incredible. I mean, who shreds a guitar better than Lance Regan? Tony LaRose was a savage on the drums. Of course, there was also Mr. Wu. To me, Mr. Wu was a mysterious pool hustler who was too cool for any of us. Here's a quick Mr. Wu story. Woodstock was on the third floor. There was a stinky public bathroom on the second floor. I went to use the bathroom and the sink was full of puke. Absolutely full of puke. Rock and roll, baby. I went upstairs and I told Mr. Wu. He came back downstairs with me and without hesitation, put his arm down into the sink and unclogged all the puke. Then he went back upstairs. I don't even know if he washed his arm or not. What a stud. Woodstock and the people who were there at that time meant a lot to me. I hope you guys are all good. Miss you guys. Korea fighting!
2: best venue i've played at i saw a photo today and it's closing down the venue is woodstock and some people i know including you i'm not sure your opinion on woodstock because i know you've played it craig but um, might be different from a guitarist or a drummer, but Woodstock in Itaewon, Seoul, South Korea, is probably the best venue I've ever played because it was the testing ground for a band. If you thought you were a band, uh, you had to walk in this place, right? The, the The walls were thick with cigarette. There was carpet on the floor that hadn't been cleaned for weeks. There was I think it weeks was just has been like, quite generous. Yeah, no, no weeks. I, I should say probably decades, right? It was, <laughs> it was a place, but you'd walk in there and no one would set anything up for you 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 had to go in there and handle everything and if you could do that and if you could rock Woodstock you got free beers and drinks whatever you wanted all night you got a handful of cash and you got the respect of a certain community to be able to play that place because I saw many bands go in there and they couldn't do it you no. know so it is a hard place so for me Woodstock in One, it was a testing ground i love and respect. to Mr Mister Oo sadly passed away, um, but yeah that's going so
1: yeah,
0: definitely. That, be that was an end, of, an, end of, an, an end of an era, definitely.
2: I wrote a tribute for him in the newspaper uh, when he passed away and I got messages from all over the world, people yeah. that had left uh, Seoul and said you know that was a that was a nice message. So he touched a lot of people, so Mr Wu's Woodstock, best venue.
0: Excellent, great choice. <laughs>
3: Good evening, Craig and uh, podcast listeners. This is uh, Kevin from You Are Soul taking a trip down memory lane with you all and talking about the mighty Woodstock and the even mightier Mr. Wu. Uh, Thank you for asking me to uh, contribute and to give my thoughts. Um, I'm speaking on behalf of, of myself and the other guys in the band, but I think I can speak for them and say that some of the absolute best memories and nights that we had as a band were, were in Woodstock. Mr. Wu absolutely made us feel right at home there. Obviously, we were all very sorry to hear of his uh, passing uh, a while back. Absolutely the, the end of the era, and I understand uh, the bar may be no more as well, so really important to kind of document our time there and, and get uh, thoughts from other, from other contributors as well. We kind of started out there, Back in two thousand and seven when when we started out as a band, and uh Woodstock was on a regular rotation right through to until we quit korea more or less twenty ten every gig an absolute blast um i think i my my personal abiding memory i think I may have mentioned it to you in the podcast when we spoke last year was um was the as a guitar player, the, the rig that was set up for us there, when you play in Korea, the, the places generously have uh, uh, guitar amplifiers for the guitar players to use, um, which is fantastic. You don't have to carry around a lot of stuff. But by and large, the, the, the amplifiers that you were you were greeted with had, you know, they were like rocket ships. They had like a million buttons and knobs and flashing lights and things. Um, but when you played in Woodstock, you had a a beautiful Lanny head with like three buttons and two knobs straight into the cab and I tell you the sound we got out of that thing was, you know, wondrous, thunderous rocking sound that we got out of that. Kind of uh sticks in my head a little bit. Anyway, thanks again for for asking me to contribute. I'm looking for, really looking forward to hearing from from other uh, other other guys speaking about their memories and, and thinking about a really important time and a really important place. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Bye.
4: My name is Tim Colling, a saxophonist from Chicago. And if you happen to be at Woodstock in Seoul in 2010, you knew me as motherfucking TK, the frontman and saxophonist for the funk group Mose Eisley. A fateful Facebook message from Dave Nickel, the guitar player for Mose Eisley, brought me to Woodstock. I had spent the first six months of my time in South Korea avoiding Itaewon like the plague, and the first time I set foot into Woodstock was also the first time I played there. To get into Woodstock, you climb three flights of stairs, pass the most disgusting bathroom in Seoul, and enter what looked like the basement of any bar in the Midwest in the United States in a college town. I think there was a door to the bar at the top of the stairs, but I don't ever remember it being closed. The overwhelming smell of cigarettes and stale alcohol is the first thing that hit you, and then you'd see it straight ahead of you. The Woodstock stage. Full stacks, house drum set, and a very questionable riser on which you'd play those gigs. I came over prepared for my first Woodstock experience. I was an active musician for about six years in Chicago prior to moving to Seoul, so I already had my own microphone for my sax. I was just looking for an XLR to plug into. The first show I played at Woodstock, I spent more time walking back and forth to the soundboard next to the bar, trying to get any channel to work than I did playing music. I was fortunate that I didn't have to deal with any of the same issues that my guitar and bass player friends did, with those stacks just not working on certain nights, questionable electricity, although I was shocked by a vocal mic on more than one occasion announcing the band. When I was fronting Mose Eisley, my job was just to be larger than life, to give the Woodstock crowd, who to me was the most important crowd that I was playing for in my life at that point, and that's true in more ways than you can know, just to give them everything. On more than one occasion, I would roll around on the ground, on the stage, and in front of the stage at Woodstock. Who knows how many shirts I ruined and how much bacteria I brought home to my apartment. I would walk on the table surrounding the stage, meander over to the pool table, where those people playing were definitely not very interested in what was happening on that stage. But at Woodstock, there was always live music. It was always loud. And good or bad, I always had an amazing time in that bar. If Mr. Wu liked you, he was quick to hand you a fistful of cash out of the cash register. Musicians also didn't pay for beer. Or at least I didn't. And I didn't drink the Korean beer. I drank the Budweiser. I was in on the premium stuff. For each set, I would go grab about five beers, start playing, rinse-repeat for the next one. And at the end of the night, after Woo had handed me a fistful of cash, I'd either take a cab home, or more often than that, I would sit at the bar until the subway started running again. Still drinking for free. I was always more of a side man, even though I was fronting the band, so I didn't have a lot of interactions with Mr. Wu directly. Phil Kozlowskis, the drummer for Mose Eisley, was the one who dealt with Mr. Wu more so than I did. After I left in 2010, I did come back for a visit in 2013. In the first place I went, Woodstock. With the help of some friends who were still in Korea, I played again at Woodstock in 2013. A Mose Eisley tribute, if you will. It was amazing to be back on that same stage three years later, just as if nothing had changed. Woodstock might have been the easiest place to book a gig in South Korea, if Mr. Wu liked you, but it was also one of the most fun rooms to play. Woodstock seemed to get the most diverse crowds of anywhere I played in South Korea. You'd get the combination of corporate expats, English teachers, adventurous young Koreans, the ajishis who really loved music... And also the drunk army recruiters who'd always tell me, you know, son, you can get paid to do this here. And I already was without having to enlist. More than anything, what Woodstock provided me and many other musicians over the years was a community and a sense of home. Moving halfway around the world, all I wanted to do was play music. I left my corporate gig to go teach English on the other side of the globe in order to find who I was. And Woodstock provided that opportunity, and then some. It didn't matter how dirty the bar was, how grungy the stage was, how shoddy the electric was. When you were on that stage, you were not in Seoul anymore. It was Woodstock, plain and simple. I had plenty of friends and coworkers who said they'd never set foot in that bar, only to come see a show there and have the time of their lives. It sucked you in. I wish I could comment more on what Woodstock was from the audience perspective, but the reality is I was pretty much only there on nights when I had a gig. But it was the most important bar that I could be in in Seoul in any of those given nights. The opportunity to play so regularly at Woodstock while I was in Seoul was a catalyst to my music career to come. I honed my skills as a frontman on that stage. I learned how to talk to the crowd. I learned how to get them moving. And without Mr. Wu providing the opportunity to play on that stage, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. I learned how to be a performer in South Korea. I learned how to be a performer at Woodstock. I now make a significant portion of my income from playing music back in the United States. But without that opportunity provided by Mr. Wu and Woodstock, I don't know if that would be the case. The running joke between me and my expat friends who experienced Woodstock in the years that I was there. Is about the grunginess. It's about how dirty it was, how disgusting the bathrooms were, but it's also about the bands we saw play there, Mr. Wu's questionable tequila shots at the end of the night. But at the same time, pretty much everybody I met at Woodstock is still my friend. I left Seoul in February of 2011, but I'm in contact with the people I knew from those Woodstock days more than some of my own friends who I lived down the street from in Chicago. Woodstock provided a community onto itself, a world onto itself in that metropolitan city of Seoul. I loved it, and I only have amazing memories from being there. Good or bad, whether it was no soap in the bathroom, dealing with smell, having to walk up those stairs, or fall down those stairs at the end of a particularly long night, the girls I met there, the bands I saw there, the drinks I had there, the gigs I played there, all play a massive part of my soul experience and memories. I loved Woodstock. I loved Mr. Wu. And believe it or not, it's more fun to play than the House of Blues in Chicago. I wish I could go back to play on that stage one more time, fall in the hole in the middle of the stage, deal with that janky soundboard, because all of those experiences were purely soul, purely Woodstock.
0: Best venue you've played at, Tom, of which there are many.
5: Which there are many, yes. I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, the the ninety nine bar, the TNT bar, which are the two names of the venues that you know we, my wife and I, owned and ran. She she owned them. I I was I, I was actually just you know, music uh, cleanup, up uh, maintenance and the occasional eye candy.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, uh, uh, maybe don't uh, don't sell yourself short, you know.
5: <laughs> Don't say yourself, short, right? <laughs> you're a tremendous slouch. Um, mm. I, I let me see. I, I had a great time playing. Um, I was. I'll just say for nostalgic purposes, I'll say Woodstock only because it was um, a dive on the third floor, terrible equipment, but the vibe when you got on stage playing there was was great. Plus Agreed. the free drinks afterwards, you know, were didn't didn't hurt either.
0: There was some great banter in there as well, eh, you know. Yes. And that, that that hole in the stage as well. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't have to deal with the hole in the stage. I think that was more. There, were, there were a
5: number of occasions over the last, you know, the last few years where, I mean, that people went to him. Uh, I was part of it one one time. Or another said, "Look, let's come in here and just let's clean the stage off. Just take all the crap out, like that the chair or whatever, you know." And, and he punched me in the chest so hard. He called me an MF right there Just he was laughing, you know, and, and just gave me a shot at 151. Not, yeah. But yeah, that was a cool venue. That yeah, a, definitely. I was
6: playing in hotel bands and the only reason I stumbled across um, Woodstock was the bass player in that hotel band had discovered this Itaewon town. Right. Because <laughs> up at the high hotel, you're living near there. You don't really know where anything is. When you, when you first come to this country, you have no idea and uh i had no idea there was a whole bunch of like wild and crazy places to get drunk <laughs> down there and uh yeah
0: and this would be what 99 or
6: 2000 i was here in 98 at the hyatt and then i came back again and played the hyatt in like which was 99 as well we came in that second time was like just before new years and then uh we stayed till like april i think we Got extended on that one, so that was like a long time in Korea. We didn't, mm. I don't think we left, we I don't think we left until like May or something. I'm not sure.
0: It's funny you say that because there was no subway into ET1 until what the beginning of 2002, if I remember rightly. I got there February 2000, and it was a long way to get into ET1. You'd have to take a cab up to Hanamdong or somewhere like that. or... Yeah. A bus and all you know and all sorts yeah. of shenanigans or walk from Nox Up Young We
6: weren't here very long and, and the weather was crappy cold. It wasn't until it was a little bit, a bit warmer that we kind of discovered other places. Mm. We were literally apartment, go play, go to the apartment. It was freezing outside, and you know, we we're obviously weren't gonna walk around anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, once weather warmed up, yeah, he stumbled across this place, I guess. They had all this music gear, so we ended up going there on uh, maybe a Sunday or something. And we all, we got a few lounge, the lounge band was there. We grabbed them all, went down there, and we just decided, let's go see if we're allowed to jam at this place. So we brought our guitars and came in, and we just asked the owner if we could maybe jam in there. And he was, you know, somehow we sorted out, he had a bit of English. You know, we we're getting set up the jam and then all of a sudden he wants to stick us take us downstairs. He throws us all in his van and you know, we the agents at the Hyatt would throw you in a van and take you to a hospital and bring you back. If it, it happened all the time, right? They'd just everybody in the van, you go drive and do sign some papers and come back for extensions or whatever. So it's like another van, what's going on? <laughs> so he so it's this is like the, Myster- the
0: mystery mobile, you know, <laughs> like something like Scooby-Doo, you know.
6: We jump in, there's a case of beer in there. And he takes us and drives us around the Hyatt Road. And he, he drove around until we drank all that beer. So he drove us around and just got us fry, fry, fry. And came back and we just jammed at his place for the next three hours, just drunk, right? And uh, I guess that would be how I really first met him was just jamming at his place he let us do anything he let us play any cds we want you know the the gear was older and kind of eh, but you know it worked (laughs) it was cool i think that really was just became like a place to jam and then i found you know of course um, you know a bit about crunky but i met you know a few people hanging out there i was playing when i was playing the hyatt it was not that easy you know because we had sunday off But we could show up in Itaewon at like four in the morning. You know, and that, you know, that place was, at 4 a.m., Woodstock was not the place to be. Like Hollywood Basement was the place to go. I
0: remember Hollywood Basement well, yeah. Many an evening spent in there. Yeah,
6: (laughs) yeah. So exactly, I mean, that was, uh, I think what happened is I'd gone again to the hotel band, of course, after that, and left. I think during that time... We were kind of rehearsing at Woodstock because through a friend I had stumbled across a group of people that recorded albums and they liked my guitar playing enough to want to record me with a band. So I got some of the hotel lounge guys and the bass player that I worked with, we got them together to jam up some material for this. During that time we recorded, we recorded a record and uh, when I left to play, I went back to Canada and I played and played Thailand and India but at that time the Korean company had put out that record and um, that Hyatt band had a major personnel implosion <laughs> which means everybody starts fighting and then you gotta go find a new band
0: right maybe the time it run its course kind of thing eh?
6: I didn't want to find a new band out of that band I just came right back to Korea I didn't go to Vancouver I just came back to Korea you know they put out the record it, it had done if it had actually done quite well from what I understood um, I didn't actually get much benefit from it because that's what can happen with <laughs> any kind of recording deal <laughs> uh, it did end up in a few producers hands that kind of got picked to do some session work a little later on but for the initial part I was literally just came back Found some friends to jam with at Woodstock, which were crunky. Mark, Chris, John, and Brian. Started jamming with those guys at at Woodstock. You know, I started to play a few of the jazz clubs because I met a few jazz musicians that were playing at all that jazz. So I don't want to get too far off crack, but I mean, I went through a few band member changes. People could play, couldn't play, blah, blah, blah. Played clubs here and there. Jammed at Woodstock sometimes. And then I had the hard rock gig for about six months and then there were some personnel changes which turned into not so great and towards the end of it bassist drummer the hard rock was going to finish our contract but that's what I thought and then they took me aside and said no we, we want to keep you going for another three weeks to another month or so it was at that point that I recruited Brian Thompson and this bass player guy named Dave who came to jam with me at the hard rock by chance, because of (laughs) some other things that just transpired. So I said, look, I'm going to extend. I said, I don't think the current bass player and drummer want to stay in Korea or want to keep the current working situation. Some dumb things happened when we were drunk, and the drummer strangled me one night in my car. And after that, I really thought it'd be good (laughs) if I got away from those people and got a new band. I replaced those guys, and I, I let them go, and then I kept the gig for another six weeks with Dave and Brian. Brian was crunky. So after that, that's how the i just saying that's how the crunky connection comes in, why I know everything about those guys, right? Uh, we ended up, after the Hard Rock, we kept playing. Brian had some military gigs for the Air Force, which is why I started doing any military stuff, because Brian was military. Dave was contractor and everything and then we'd still go and jam at woodstock occasionally if we had a, like usually a saturday night we'd show up and play and it, that's just how that whole thing kind of transpired and 2001 came up and brian was we're still the trio and we're, we're having a good time i still i still did some jazz gigs at some of the jazz clubs because i mm-hmm. played with some guys and then uh, you know we were just kind of you know, if we if we had a gig somewhere else, we'd go play military Saturday afternoon, but we'd be at Woodstock Friday, Saturday jamming and playing. Like it was kind of became you know our thing.
0: That was a bit like home base thing, huh?
6: I think so. You know, it started to be that. And then uh I remember I remember again the hard rock hired us back again because every time they'd they'd screw up with their agency for their philippine or indonesian bands they'd get in a fight and drop everything so they'd, they'd hire <laughs> my band to fill in well they, they found a new agent right? <laughs> i mean and we were fine it wasn't like we were playing crap i kept it current we were playing a good number of the hits for the day you hmm. know trio rock and roll right Trians right. always love smoke on the water you know i mean
0: <laughs> who doesn't
6: Lance? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs>
0: depends how many times you've played it, i suppose
6: I remember that, and when I did that though, it really it pissed off Mr. Wu. He was all upset, and he threw up his hands that night. <laughs> so we were gone for a while, and it's like didn't look like didn't look like we'd really be welcome back there again. But uh, once the Hard Rock ended, Dave and I went down, and we just talked to him, and you know, it's the same as always. Once we explained it to him and talked to him, and he understood, he looks at it, and goes, "Okay." Saturday. And that was it. It was just, that was right back to normal after that. (laughs) Yeah, it was around that time that World Cup was coming up, and uh, I had, I was doing some K-pop sessions. I'd worked with the Juju Club and a few other groups, and Finkel, and then I ended up being friends with Boa's manager, because he used to get drunk and watch us play at Woodstock. (laughs) So he he hired us to be Boa's band. (laughs) And that That was like right around World Cup when her first single was going to drop and it just went like ballistic. So all this happened. And then Wu put us on six nights a week at Woodstock because he wanted to gather the World Cup business, Mm. which which never really happened. But that started the six nights a week house right there in 2002. And uh, that was a crazy year. So we played six nights at Woodstock. Every Friday, we were playing military gig from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. And then we'd pack that up and come back to Woodstock like for 11 p.m. show. So Friday was the only weird day. But every other day was 10 o'clock, we start rocking. Crack the first OB at (laughs) 9. (laughs) That was the run from like I say, it was 2002 to like right to the end of 2005 we were six nights a week uh, at Woodstock and then I ran that open mic two times a month so I was there seven nights a week sometimes.
0: looking back right it's the things you do you think seven days a week really was i doing that you know yeah,
6: yeah 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 i know. No, know that you've mentioned that but that is the funny thing when i talking to you and i think about that i'm like holy crap you know i was and i was literally down in like a, a six pack or more a night all the time <laughs> yeah
0: i mean it's just par for the course right
6: you remember those tall big you had the tall
0: the, the glass ones right <laughs> yeah
6: <laughs> And in that first 2002 year, a lot transpired. Like, like I said, because I did that album recording in 1999, I used to use it as a demo, and I passed it off to Boa's manager, and he passed it off to a whole pile of people. And pretty soon, I was playing guitar for just about everybody in SM Entertainment. <laughs> it was just, it was so bizarre how all this happened. Like, you know, we'd play at this sleazy dump all the time. And yet, in the daytime, I would be either in recording studios or television studios three days a week, working on stuff, and I'm half drunk out of my mind the whole time. But yeah, you know, friends in powerful places, and they right. just like what you did it was, exactly. Yeah, it's it's kind of bizarre when I look. I I think I was thirty. You know, that energy was still there too. That that excitement, that energy, like you're 30, you, you can just magically, you got the energy. Right. <laughs> Nowadays, it's like, oh, let me get up and pull my back. <laughs> it's a bit more heavy lifting
0: involved these days, I think, you know. <laughs> I think we have a similar vintage line, so I think we, <laughs> we, we we can appreciate these things.
6: Oh, for sure, man. I mean, it's a, I mentioned it was 2002, but shortly after that, once we were there six nights a week, the cops were honest. <laughs>
0: right.
6: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Funny. I mean, it, you know, I've just seen some weird stuff at Woodstock, honestly. There was just weird characters and some strange things coming through. What?
0: There was one of the videos you posted there eh, when the guy was doing, what was it he was doing? He was like, he was, like jumping over the chairs or something. That that Yeah, that video is just bonkers, man, right? How the guy didn't break his neck is just, I don't oh,
6: know. He piled up hard. This bunch of guys came in, but um, they're Russian and Ukrainian, working here, I guess. They didn't speak much English, but, dude, they were rock and roll fanatics. I swear, these were the guys that were crying at Guns N' Roses when they first got to the hmm? Eastern Bloc. These are the guys that were just crying. You know, but they, they just, we were playing all the rock and roll. They just, they were, they were buying us drinks. They were spilling booze everywhere. And um, there's buddies egged him on. He was jumping chairs. Cause I guess a lot, a lot of Russian guys kind of are gymnast or that circus kind of thing is, mm-hmm. is there. It's in just being not being in the circus, but being able to do those kind of gymnastics, it's part of, Russian culture, right?
0: Right, maybe about the education background there as well. When the
6: yes, when the schools. I, I think, I, Alex explained it to me. He said it's just it's just part of what Russians do. It's not it's not, not nothing to be weird like balancing, juggling, flipping. It's part of Russian upbringing. So there's this guy. He he jumps a small item. He is being egged on by his friends. So then they put down the table, and he, he he basically dives, does a flip, and lands on his feet. That's the gag. So he does a few successful ones, and of course, more shots. Right. in, in between. <laughs> when I when the guy first showed up there, he stood in center stage right beside me and did a backflip right in front of me, right in, right on the Woodstock stage, and we're all just like, "Holy crap! What's this dude on?" And he runs up <laughs> to the bar. Then they all shot, 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 and then it starts. So then they got him to jump the sofa. Then the sofa wasn't good enough. Let's put a table on the sofa. (laughs) Goes on and on. So the video was of the final pile where his friends just kept piling up anything that they were allowed to move. And, uh, He, he just did that face plant right. He's, so he's, <laughs> he's
3: just
0: yeah, it's going to hot the next morning. That's for sure.
6: <laughs> he had he had he had the leg of the chair in front of his forehead.
0: Right? Oh man, that's rough.
6: But just smacking him on the head, and giving him more vodka. And he'll laugh. <laughs> He's clearly hurt his his shoulder, man. He's, he's kind of his right arm wasn't working correctly. Oh, <laughs> yeah.
0: But these were some of the things that you would you would experience or see for yourself in in Woodstock, but maybe not many other places. It was quite. Quite unique in this kind of nature, you know, late night Korean bars always had a little bit of atmosphere, shall we say, in a certain kind of ambience, but Woodstock maybe had that, to use the kind of spinal tap thing, they always kind of turned it up to a living, right? You'd always get something a little bit more special or unique.
6: I saw a group of army guys come in, same thing, loving the band, having fun, it was their buddy's birthday, anyway, they got drunk and got arguing, so they, they literally get in a fight, all six of them, they're all friends, they all get in a fight. And I see what buddy, he picks up a beer bottle and, and he goes to break it over one of his buddy's head, but he doesn't hit him hard enough. So it just goes bonk. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes, it just goes clink. I remember it just goes clink. And, and I'm looking, it's like slow motion. And then his buddy turns around and he goes, what? A beer bottle? <laughs> yes pace them right and the dude's head lands right at my feet and i'm standing there i go out on the mic i go whoa you guys are friends what are you doing? <laughs> and, and they're all they're all so drunk they weren't even paying attention and i said you guys you're all friends what are you doing and they stop <laughs> and they look around and they go oh sorry man <laughs> <laughs> They all got blood and black eyes, <laughs> and he sit Back down, and keep drinking.
0: <laughs> Dude. Ah, uh, yeah, I mean. <laughs> and how long, how many years did you play there? I mean, yeah, I, I can imagine, when Maybe it's when you didn't see nights like this, you think, Oh, it's quite quiet tonight, you know? <laughs> yeah. You become immune to it, you know?
6: Yeah, there was, there was some things you just just did was um i I remember once i had my hair i had it tied up but it was tied up samurai style Mm -hmm. and so i was i was just you know that there were always friends there i could talk to them and make jokes i mean it's just stuff we did but i was making a joke that i was dressed up like you know it was samurai night right there were three drunk korean guys right at the back Entrance wall, you know that back entrance wall? They're mm. there with their backs to the wall. I started talking, and right by my head, beer bottle, and it explodes behind me above the, the Laney amp. Okay. Right by my head, and all I hear behind me is, and it was one of these Korean guys that chucked a beer bottle at me. Well, over at the pool table were some friends that. Were, they really loved our band and when they saw that these two American guys, they walk over the corner and all I see are elbows in the air <laughs> and, and I'm just standing there, we're all Dave and I are standing with our mouths open because you know, Dave was the one, he's like he's almost hit his head Who <laughs> and then the two he's like, what? Who and they're over there and oh yeah, these three guys got tossed out the door like just like that. And my pool playing buddies walk up, they go, It's okay, Lance. We took care of it for you. <laughs> they all they both brought me a couple beers. Here's a couple beers. Sorry for
0: <laughs> the trouble.
6: <laughs> I mean that's <laughs> that,
0: that, that yeah, is a wee bit uncalled for I, I mean flying beer bottles is not cool in anyone's uh, <laughs> in the line of Judy and all that, you know, it's uh, yeah no one needs that. A little bit of banter. That, that,
6: bottle, that bottle was going for my head, you know.
0: That doesn't Could've end well.
6: Could have been bad. Yeah. How did it all come to an end then,
0: Lance? What was the kind of thing that made you move on to the next uh, the next stage, you know, when you really kind of went out and into your own?
6: After 2002, it was mostly his brother ran the bar. Um, but he just let me, me and Malsuk run it, and we just we just paid him every week. And that we kept going until 2005, and then... Uh, I don't know. Like I'd say, Mr. Wu did come back, and then him and Mal Suk weren't getting along too well. And you know, I'd say just uh, he was just not happy with a lot of things. You know, him and Mal Suk eventually they just they just broke up too, as well. And then uh, was with it was within that few you know four or five months that he was back, and you know, he just he just finally told us to go. I just I don't think he wanted the band every night. I kind of wish you'd have just kept this on maybe one or two nights just to, because it kept the band energized, honestly, right? Right. Like that regular thing. Sure. Uh, which I say I think I missed for a little bit, but, it, you know, it all worked somehow, you know. We we had more time to rehearse newer stuff and play more events, basically. But that, that was it, you know, and after that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want a house gig. I was tired. I was drinking too much. I mean, all these sorts of things were starting to have effects, you know.
0: Right. And it grows arms and legs eh, when you live a kind of lifestyle like that. It just becomes the norm.
6: How'd that door get broken at home? Well, uh, <laughs> not
0: you, you might, you might, Energize is a good word to describe, actually, because you probably feel just like you don't have any energy for it. You know, it's just like, poof, you know, the... The weight of everything just becomes a bit too much, him. Eh?
6: I think so. You know, the the open mic on Sundays was it was it was really fun because there were some really creative guys around. But once they started to kind of leave or move on or get different jobs, that whole crowd shifted, and it. I, I, I don't really want to be negative about the open mic because I think there is was great fostering of mm. you know people to to get out of their shells and play. Right. I thought was fantastic. And there was a lot of that, but it just kind of, it just kind of, some of it even turned into a bit of karaoke, which was really disappointing and just started to be, that was even becoming kind of a, a grind to do because I go, I could say none of the really, really cool people that had some really neat stuff to do, they just, they just stopped coming out too. I mean, it was just, yeah, you know. They'd come one week, there'd be like three karaoke singers kind of trying to impress people. And then, you know, they'd get get upset about that. So you'd always had this sort of thing going back and forth, you know, with the the true poets or the true musicians against the, you know, blah, 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 blah. blah.
0: I remember going one night, oh, I don't know when this must have been, but I remember going one night, and it was, most of it was, um, like, kind of poetry reading if I want to say that or it's not that's not the right word spoken word yeah it was there was a bunch Um, of that going on and I was like it was alright I remember being in Woodstock and it was uh, yeah I I think I was a voyeur in those days (laughs) I didn't play anything or whatever I just kind of you know seen what was out there maybe I was looking for a band I forget but yeah yeah, I kind of but it was fine you know it was quite a pleasant atmosphere
6: yeah the spoken word stuff I I always thought was fantastic it was just It was a different angle as opposed to everybody coming up and playing blues over and over again. When just blues had closed down 2004, I think, or 2003, they had closed closed and moved um, for various reasons. But yeah, I think that was the neat thing about that. The, the, The sand open mic, you didn't know what to expect. I just even noticed then, 2004 to 2005, A lot of people that were kind of making it happen had moved away. And then the effort was sort of shifted to me and not really, but I'm not, it, it was, it was just a really cool couple of years where it was something else. I just think it was just something else. There was just something else going on and there were a lot of people just moved away and it was over. The right. real fun was it was over. It, it Sunday was like a job. I'd go in Sunday, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, but it'd be like, not, not this guy again. Oh no, <laughs> you
0: know? and, yeah. Man, nobody really wants that on a Sunday at the best of times, eh? you know.
6: Yeah, I mean, it, I think personally, if you feel that way about it, I think it is time to get out of it. Yeah, you know, and let somebody else.
0: And it, it, it did. Uh, from what I remember, it moved on to a few different locations after that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moved from Woodstock, I forget where, but yeah, I remember Yvonne had it in various other guises and other locations and all that.
6: Yeah, and it, I think he kind of picked up a lot of that because a lot of it was a lot of his friends that started it and they moved away and he kind of became the guy to pick it up. And he did, and he, he kind of found that maybe it actually, it, I think for a while it revitalized because he would plan it at different venues twice a month, he would he would actually find different places to host it that were open to the idea of I'm gonna come here, then go to this place, this place, this place, and come back to you. And it would make it more interesting as a group to do that. So in some sense, I think it it, it kept itself alive. I mean, it's, it was really nice to talk to you. I'm glad we did this. It's, it's, yeah, man, it it's was a pleasure. This podcasting is also part of you know entertainment industry, and I think it's a great thing to be doing. It's a good way to get the word out there. I think personalizes stuff. I think it just makes it makes a difference to ever uh, whoever watches and listens to uh, to any of these. You know, it's great work, brother. You're doing. Thank good. you.
0: Cheers, man. I'll catch up with you sometime soon, that's all the best. Woo Style by JJ Alexander. Woodstock in 81 was one of the first places I went to when I arrived in South Korea. Within about a week, I found myself at the Woodstock bar on a weeknight, Tuesday I think it was, having a drink at the bar with my friends. There was either no one there besides us, or maybe one or two other people. My friend had been there a bunch of times, so was familiar with the place. and knew Mr Wu a little. Well, enough to know he'd let us get on stage and play some music, if you can call it that. Even though he had never met me before. After a few drinks, I think I borrowed one of the guitars that Mr Wu had lying around. Plugged in, and my friend grabbed a mite and we hashed out some old stuff we used to play back in the day to an empty venue. Little did I know Woodstock would be a major part of my life over the next two years. In my little world, it was one of the foundations of the music scene in Soul. the other being Stompers. Why? A few reasons. Number 1. Mr Rue was one of the few club owners that would pay you cash if you played there, depending on how big the crowd was and assuming your band didn't suck. I had a rough patch financially when I was in Korea, as I had initially planned on living in China, but had problems with getting my visa there, so wound up in Seoul after a visa run. In that time, I was literally feeding myself with the money I got from Mr. Wu, which allowed me a steady diet of kimbap and ramyun with egg. This was in addition to free drinks for the night, which later changed the policy of, thank God, because we were drinking way too much free alcohol. Number 2. Woodstock was one of the rare live venues in Seoul that would generate its own crowd. Most live music venues in Korea would consist of a crowd going to see a specific band, and when that band was done, the entire crowd would leave with the band, leaving behind a totally empty venue. So you had to bring your own crowd with you. Whereas Woodstock often had its own crowd of people, either just drinking and hanging out, Often playing DJ by playing songs on the house system or shooting pool, or maybe there just to actually see random live music. Some nights were totally dead and some nights were nearly packed. You never really knew. Number three, Mr. Wu would let you rehearse there for free during the weekdays. It was often pretty dead from Sunday to Thursday, so Mr. Wu would often let bands use the place to rehearse. Put all of those things together and you have a fertile ground for amateur musicians to do their thing. It allowed for bands to form that otherwise would not have had the outlet nor the resources to do so. This in turn allowed a band to then branch out and play at other venues in Seoul or even other parts of South Korea. All thanks to the generosity of Mr. Wu and his genuine love of music, specifically rock music. It also had a healthy mix of both expat bands and native Korean bands which not only made for an eclectic musical experience but also allowed expats to meet local Koreans and experience some of the culture. Some bands were totally amateur and sometimes awful and sometimes were basically pro level. It was a great place to network and meet other musicians, who knows how many bands were formed by musicians who met there and the unpretentious atmosphere put everyone on equal footing. So everyone felt approachable. Musicians, you know, sometimes can be very snobby. Over time, the place grew a family-like atmosphere for me because you spent a lot of time around Mr. Woo, the bartenders and the regulars, oftentimes eating and drinking with him at the bar, even when it was dead. After Woodstock shut down, I never found another place like it in Seoul during my later visits. The place itself needed work. A lot of work. The sound system and amps, the bass amp in particular, were a total crapshoot if they'd be working or not. Somehow, almost magically, everything would come together and the gig would happen. Maybe you had to track down a kick pedal, maybe you had to troubleshoot the signal path of the PA system, or maybe you had to sacrifice a chicken to get the bass amp to work. But I don't remember ever having to cancel or not be able to play due to the equipment. The entire place needed an overhaul, and I know many females would never go there more than once after seeing how dirty it was, and just how bad the bathroom was. The carpet was a horror show which left a forensic history of the past, no doubt going back many, many years. The felt on the pool table had rough spots, the bar probably wouldn't have passed any legitimate health inspection, and the smell of cigarette smoke blanketed everything, which was sometimes a good thing. The physical layout of the stage was actually pretty good. It was a decent size with some seats in front, standing room and back and some visibility from the pool table that was adjacent. The sound of the actual room was also surprisingly good, assuming that somebody did the decent job of mixing the band. The bartenders were always nice, the drinks were relatively cheap and the vibe was laid back and very comfortable if the grit and cigarette smoke didn't bother you. You always felt welcome. I'd hear musicians complain about the equipment from time to time, but having been born and raised in Los Angeles, where each musician had to bring his own gear, meaning the drummer had to bring his own kit, cymbals, pedals, etc. and the guitarist had to bring their own amps, I was always happy to have any equipment at all. Had I needed to bring my own amp, I would have never been able to play there. Mr Wu himself was a somewhat complex character, Sometimes jovial, sometimes somber, sometimes stoic, and sometimes a bit zany. He'd often wow a small crowd with his billiard trick shots, or get a round of free shots which he'd drink with you, or playfully put you in a semi-headlock and jump up and down. If he thought your band wasn't good, or needed more practice, or didn't like something, he'd tell you. I was respected that about him, he actually cared about the music. Over the period that I went there, I had heard of people offering to completely tear down the audio system and rebuild it for free, as well as add new equipment for free, but Mr Wu always refused. I never understood that, and I still don't. There was a somewhat mysterious aspect to him and his personal life. I heard from some that he suffered a heartbreak in his earlier years that maybe he never fully recovered from. In his last hours, he played Angel by Jimi Hendrix on his phone while in his hospital bed. And to my knowledge, that's how he passed. I'm not sure, but I heard he preferred to be alone in that time. There were many that would have otherwise wanted to visit him, but he kept his illness as somewhat of a secret. His passing was a surprise to me. Mr. Wu was the guy you would just assume would always be there. He was strong and almost iconic. When I thought of Et1, Mr. Wu and Woodstock were some of the defining characteristics. In the bigger picture of the world music scene, Woodstock was just a dive bar that most people never heard about. But to those of us who went there or played there often, it was like an anchor point, or at the risk of sounding dramatic, a second home, especially for expats who were very far from home.
7: I lived in Korea from 2005 to 2010 but I didn't spend a lot of time at Woodstock until 2009 when I started playing gigs in Itaewon with various bands. So my memory of Woodstock is associated with the late Joe Hagel in whose band Joe Hagel and the Morning Calm I played guitar and sang backup vocals. One hot summer night on stage at Woodstock, the band was having an especially good set, and during the finale Desperate Man, a song which in retrospect was probably more autobiographical than any of us realized at the time, someone shouted out Joe Hagel in the morning calm? More like Joe Hegel in the morning fury. We took that to be a nice compliment, or at least an acknowledgement of the energy we were bringing to our performance. So although I have nothing but praise for Mr. Wu, who was always very nice to us, and always generous to us and all the other musicians who played at his venue, I hope my Woodstock memory may also serve as a kind of tribute to Joe. Despite our disagreements and conflicts, he was my friend, and his dedication to the craft of songwriting was an inspiration to me and many others. I'm still shocked that he's no longer with us.
8: One of my overriding memories of Mr. Oo is that he literally didn't care who you were, what you'd look like, how old you were, what color skin you had, as long as you could rock. That was it. We were playing in Seoul and around Korea at a time where some venue owners were trying to give you half a beer coupon and counting how many people you bought through the door and other venues. The only thing that mattered was if you had a Ramones tattoo or could play three chord songs and this thing, there was, there was a lot of selective attitudes, but you went to Woodstock and you saw Mr. Roo and he basically always looked the same. He had that baseball cap, that sort of yellow check played shirt, the waistcoat puffer jacket on top of that. And He didn't care what you look like. He didn't care where you were from. All he cared about was that there's a stage, get up there and rock this ballroom. And if you can do that, then you're good in my book. And that was all he really cared about. And it was so eye-opening and it might sound weird, but I genuinely think it was pretty progressive. And you didn't see a lot of that at the time. That was Mr. Who.
0: follow can't find my way home on instagram at can't Talk find my way home on facebook at expat music pod and of course you can find us on spotify anchor.fm apple podcast and wherever you get your podcasts from you'll find us there until the next one this is greg saying cheers